Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Bobby L., and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is 13 January 1998. I got sober in Bitburg, Germany, at Bitburg Air Base, uh, through no fault of my own. Uh, my home group is the Tucker Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a sponsor named Wayne, and he has a sponsor, and he has a sponsor, and I think he has a sponsor, if he's still alive. Uh, I'm supposed to come up here tonight and give you my experience, strength, and hope, but i got to be honest with you. If your sobriety is depending on what I tell you tonight, you better call your sponsor now. <laughs> I am not going to tell you anything profound, anything original, or anything some other alcoholic hadn't already said. About 90% of what I'm going to tell you I heard from another alcoholic. When I came in here, I drank every day. And I thought that was normal. I thought everybody drank every day, and those that didn't were you know, wimps. I don't drink because I like the taste of alcohol. Uh, I have learned. I got sober when I was 38. I'm 52 now. I think my wife over there even check with her. Uh, I had my first taste of beer at five, when I was five years old. And I didn't like it. So I tried it again when I was 12. And I didn't like it. So I tried it again when I was 15. Had my first blackout. And I loved it. <laughs> but I didn't drink because it tasted good. I have developed the ability to know when that switch clicks. Once I start drinking, I can't stop. Somewhere between two and three, depending on how much alcohol is in what I'm drinking, that switch goes off. And I recognized that before I got here. I just thought everybody had that. I thought that was normal. Uh, I drank the blackout. The only reason I stopped drinking once I started was I either ran out, blacked out, or passed out. I didn't stop drinking voluntarily. And uh, later in my military career, I, I would stop at 3 or 4 in the morning because, you know, you got to get up at 5.30 to go to work. Uh, I did have my wife take me out to work one day. Uh, I will deny this if anybody ever repeats this on tape. Uh, to fix the radar, and she had to drive because I was too drunk to get through the gate. But I did fix the radar, but in the morning I couldn't tell you what I did, because I didn't remember. Uh, once I started, I couldn't tell you how it was going to end. I didn't get in trouble every time I drive. I had a lot of fun when I drank, you know, uh, sometimes. And people go, you know, my best, my worst day sober was better than my best day drunk. I'm like, well, by God, you were doing it wrong. Because <laughs> I had a lot of fun initially and for a long time, and then it stopped being fun. Uh, I got to the point where, you know, I couldn't get through a day without a drink. And I didn't drink in the morning, I didn't drink at work, so I thought that made me okay. Well, I had two beers at lunch, but that didn't count because the military said you can have two beers at lunch. So, okay, that's not too many. They didn't specify how big the bottles had to be, but, you know, that was that. They just said two. 
Uh, I got my first DUI at 18 in the city of Doraville, and I learned my lesson. I never drank in Doraville again. <laughs> uh, now, what I like to do sometimes, I was a military instructor, so we like to analyze our audience. So, uh, and just by a show of hands, you don't need to call your name out or nothing, but uh, Cleve hit on it. How many people here have mastered driving with one eye? How many hung their head out driving down the road to keep the breeze on your face? How many of you have survived on alcohol and coffee for more than a week? Uh, I have successfully prevented a hangover for seven days by staying drunk for eight. Uh, by the time I got here, alcohol wasn't my problem. Alcohol was my solution. It was my answer for everything. Good days, bad days, sad times, happy times. It didn't matter. That was my emotional control. And I drank like a lot of alcoholics. I wanted to be somebody else. I was not happy in my own skin. Uh, the best solution I could come up with with my life was start drinking on Friday and not stop until late Sunday night. During the week didn't count for me because I called that maintenance drink. I didn't realize... That people didn't, you know, drink till they passed out during the week. I just, you know, that was just how I got to sleep. I didn't drink till I had a drinking problem. I drank till I had a sleeping problem. I couldn't sleep if I didn't drink, so that's what it did. By the time I got here on one of those Friday nights, I, uh, and this was the worst it had ever gotten. I started drinking about 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon in a blizzard in Bitburg. I was a really responsible guy, too. I went and talked to the first sergeant. and said, we got to get these guys out of here before it's not safe. So he's like, damn, you are one of the best NCOs I've got. You're right. So we called around, got, got the commander's permission, got everybody shipped out, got them back to their homes where they'd be safe in the blizzard so I could go to the package store and get two racks of beer and start stocking it up. Uh, I don't know how much I had to drink that night. The last memory I had that night was about 9 o'clock. I thought, my wife told me later, it was about 6. But I noticed my neighbor had two heads. And he kept going like this. <laughs> and uh, most, that's where most people stop drinking or slow down or something. I just went and splashed some water on my face and stuck my finger down my throat to make room for more and went back. Not that any of y'all have ever done anything like that. <laughs> Once again, I, I'm not going to tell you anything I haven't heard about. Uh, Saturday morning, I was woken up at 5.30 in the morning by the uh, OSI, which is the Air Force version of NCIS, if you watch TV. And the security police, I'd assaulted two people, put one of them in the hospital, and I couldn't tell you who it was. And when I found out who it was, it broke my heart. But it was somebody very close to me that didn't deserve it. And I couldn't tell you what happened. I had no idea. They put me in a restricted barracks for a few days. The first night, they put me in billeting, which has a little refrigerator in it full of liquor. With a little tea on it. And the first sergeant said, don't drink. If you drink, you're going to the brig. 
Now, there are a lot of things in my life I do not want to do, and going to the brig was on the top of the list at that time. So, by the grace of God, I did not drink. Sunday morning, sometime early, early Sunday morning, I started seeing things. Like smoke in the room, and I could see every speck of dust, and there were spiders all over me, and I, or I thought it was and I took hot showers and cold showers and hot showers and cold showers, hoping I would feel better. And by God, I did not get better. I didn't know I was going through DT because I didn't know what DT was. Of course, about two months later, the Air Force psychologist said, don't stop drinking without telling us because you might go into DTs and it could kill you. So the government wheels turned a little slower than normal. <laughs> but I did know to call a chaplain for two reasons. One, anything he said to a chaplain was completely confidential and he could not testify against you at your court martial. Uh, I was a tech sergeant in the military at that time, and tech sergeants don't get to assault. If you're an airman and you assault somebody, we'll talk about it. But when you're an NCO and you put people in the hospital and they're civilians, they get really angry. So I kind of knew what was going to happen. It was just a matter of when. Uh, So I called the chaplain, and the chaplain said, You're an alcoholic. And I didn't know what an alcoholic was. I thought my brother was an alcoholic. My brother couldn't hold down a job, and he drank a lot. And In my memory, now at this time he's got a job, and he doesn't drink a lot. But at that time, that's the way, I, you know, I drew little lines in the sand. As long as I didn't cross those lines, I was an alcoholic. I still had a wife, kids, car, job. I couldn't be an alcoholic. Forget about the fact that I was going to lose that in about four or five minutes. All of that in that order. But at the time, I wasn't one of them. But he said, you need to go to an AA meeting. It'll help you, and it may help you keep you out of trouble. So I went to an AA meeting. January 13, 1998, Bitburg, Germany. A little building called the Prince Cassern. Just one fact. It was where Bitburg, or Hitler, parked all the tanks underground before the Battle of the Bulge. Just a neat fact there. Uh, and I walked into that room, and, well, actually, I didn't walk into the room. I walked up to the room, and this fellow stuck his hand out and said, how are you doing? I'm Mark. Are you looking for the AA meeting? I said, yes, I think I am. Because naturally, I looked like I was looking for an AA meeting. I put on my best uniform. I ironed it till the starches and the creases were so sharp you could cut paper. And I looked like somebody had put a fresh coat of paint on a condemned house. <laughs> Because I was sick. I was bad looking. And I thought nobody would know. And I wasn't really eager about getting in there. But Mark started shaking my hand and he didn't start backing up. He didn't let go. And before he let go of my hand, he had pulled me into that room and said, there's the coffee and cigarettes we smoke on the left side of the room, not the right. This room is like 13 by 13 feet. What difference is that? <laughs> But to one of them alcoholics in there, it was important that you not smoke on that side of the room. Because that's the way we are. If you don't believe it, go to Sparks. <laughs> I didn't hear everything they said that night, but I heard some 
important stuff. I don't remember everything they said. I remember they went around the room and I heard my life story. I thought my wife had called and told them I was doing it. But then they talked about things my wife didn't know about. And I knew they knew. And I was home. I had found a sanctuary. And I knew that day I was an alcoholic. And I admitted it. I said, my name is Bobby and I'm an alcoholic. And I cried for about 15 minutes. And it wasn't because I was happy. I thought being an alcoholic meant I was a failure. Because now I was like those people that I thought were alcoholics. That was every bad story I'd ever heard and every bad story I ever saw on television. They told me I didn't have to drink today. And if I could stay sober till bedtime, I would be tied for first place. And I thought that was pretty damn important. They said they'd hold me up until I could stand up by myself and then I'd be safe. And you know, to a sick puppy like me, that's what I needed to hear. I listened to the Sandy B tapes off and on, and that's pretty much all I did. I went to meetings. Every time they had a meeting, I was there. On the weekends, we would travel. And those people, they were like 12 people that first night. And they took me to meetings, every American-speaking meeting we could get to, every English-speaking meeting in Germany. I assume they had German-speaking meetings. They tell me they do, but I never saw any of those. But we would drive two and a half hours to one army base and have a meeting, and then we'd drive another two and a half hours to an Air Force base and have a meeting, and we'd drive two and a half hours to another army base and have another meeting, and then we'd drive back and stop at all those other meetings on the way back. Had a candlelight meeting in a place called Bombholder, if you've ever been there. If you thought 13 by 13 was small, you need to go to Bombholder for a minute. The room is like six feet by eight feet. I'm not sure. I think it used to be a bridge. The rooms are the same size. Uh, later they told me I didn't have much time, so I needed to get to work. And I didn't know what that meant. But I did go to a meeting one night because uh, I was sort of losing my mind. And all that, because all I'd been doing was, you know, not drinking and going to meetings. And because and, that's what they said to do. And I figured I'll be okay if I just keep doing that. And I was, but I was losing my mind. And I went to a meeting and I went, is this all there is? And I'm sure they had been talking about doing some other stuff. But if they did, I missed it. I don't ever remember them talking about God that first couple months I was in. They took me to a meeting about higher power at uh, Kaiser Schwab. And I heard some people talk, talk about their higher powers and I'm like, wow. That's really different. Not that I was a little judgmental when I got here. <laughs> don't want don't want you thinking that. Not that I was kind of set in my ways and everything was black and white, because it was. There was no gray in my life. Everything was black and white. Uh, that changed. And they said, it's a wee program and you need to start working. So I went to my sponsor's house and we sat down one weekend. And he said, we're going to talk about the first three steps. 
and you're not going to make them complicated. I know you're going to want to, and I know you have been for the last two months, but let's clear that up now. You can't, he can't, let's let it. And he said, your third step, prayer, is your commitment to do the rest of this. And I'm telling you now, Bobby, if you're not willing to go to the end, don't start. Because it will ruin your life if you don't finish. Like I had a lot of potential at this point. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm pending court martial facing 14 years for two counts of assault. Uh, and, and you might find this hard to believe, but they don't send you to the brig with an honorable discharge. They don't even send you to the brig with a general discharge. Uh, you have to work up to something like the big chicken dinner, which is bad conduct discharge, or worse. And then you get to go see the brig. And you know, as an NCO, you have to pull like a week's duty at the brig at your local brig at every base. They have, at a, the brig at a local base is like an office with a door and the locks on the outside. But it's it's kind of like dorms, but you don't get to, you don't have any control over your lock. But it's comfort, and you have to work there for like a week. I tell you what, the brig's completely different when you're on the other side of that door. Uh, I like to call the brig my long-term treatment facility. And we'll get to that in a little bit, because there was some fun. Uh, I got all kinds of great lessons in humility while I was there. Uh, I didn't think I deserved them at the time, but if y'all are like me, I, you know, I don't ever get those lessons when I think I need them. My sponsor told me he didn't have a calendar, he didn't have a stopwatch, so we'd do the next step when I got ready to do it. And I didn't know what that meant, and he said, you're not. So I started working on my fourth step. Now, if you're like me, I did my fourth step. I wrote about half of it in code. I did it in little bitty letters. I wrote as small as I could. Because I'm paying the court martial. They ain't using this crap against me. Because I thought, you know, this whole, I'm, you know, I, I'm in the military. And I, everything I know about the investigative and criminal side of the military is what I've seen on TV. And so I think that's the way it is. Now, that's not the way it is, but you don't know that until you find out. I recommend you not find out the way I did. Uh, but nonetheless, I did proceed to get sober. I got that fourth step done. I started it about four times, and it just, oh, God, it's horrible. Because then I'm writing down all this stuff, and I'm looking at it, and I'm sober looking at it. And it was some pretty bad stuff. I didn't realize it was kind of average for AA. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'll let you. Even the second part wasn't that bad. Uh, and then he, he, we did ours, you know, you see the little paper with all the little charts. He has a bigger chart. He said, just do it like I did. He goes, because we'd already talked about a lot of stuff that was going to wind up on that list. And he said, Bobby, when you get over there and you start answering those questions, it might be better for you to just make columns for all the questions and just use check marks. Because some of those are just kind of these ways. Just put check marks and we'll talk about the check marks. So that's what we did. Now he tricked me, though. Because when we got to the end, he said, now count up the check marks. Later, when we uh, 
talked about this stuff. And I added up all the check marks, and lo and behold, I found out I was not the person I thought I was. I was nowhere near the person that I thought I was. Can you believe that I had been living an entirely different life than my alcoholic friends? I realize that's new to some of you. I was not the lone wolf. 90% of every decision I ever made in my life was made because I was worried about what somebody else did. I used to tell people I didn't like groups of people. That's horse pucky. I did not like being by myself. And if that meant getting drunk and hanging out with strangers, that was okay with me because then I could convince myself I was not by myself. Uh, a lot of people talk about how, uh, you know, we're nuts. Uh, but we don't know how to have relationships. And I didn't, I didn't know how to have a relationship with myself. Always felt alone. It didn't matter. I, you know, I could be in a group and I didn't feel like I was part of it. I learned in the military I could be in charge of a group and feel like I'm not part of it. Because that was just how far I would push myself out because I would not, I, I didn't know how to have a relationship. I'm sure at some point in my upbringing there was some lesson that I've got, but I killed that brain cell. With either Jim Bean or the, the Bush Chaser. Once again, I'm not drinking for taste either. It, it could have been hands for all I know. You know, it's like drinking Coors. People go, oh, you can't get drunk on Coors. I go, oh, you're not doing it right. <laughs> Buy two cases next time. <laughs> and drink them really fast. Uh, but I did my fifth step with a chaplain, because I knew a chaplain couldn't testify against me at my court -line. And then when I got it all done, I felt such a relief that I went straight to my sponsor's house and sat out on the duty. And some people say they didn't get their relief in the fifth step of by God, that's where I got mine. Because suddenly all of that baggage that I'd been carrying around, I wasn't carrying around anymore. It didn't weigh nothing like I thought it did. I found out during my fifth step that I had two successful relationships in my life. Uh, neither one of those were my wives. They were the two women that I had met and dated and not had sex with. And those were the only two successful relationships I had ever had. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to advise my son about that, but it's too late. Because now, now we have an eight-month-old grandbaby. So. And, and he's the cutest thing, but, you know, God bless his soul. He is darling. I don't know how he's going to survive, but we'll, we'll, you know, cross that bridge when we get to it, one day at a time. Uh, I used to tell myself I was humble. I found out during my fifth step I'm not. <laughs> I'm not modest either, if you haven't noticed that. But I am, in fact, a social being. I, I would die if I was somewhere by myself. It would kill me. Today, I don't have to go anywhere by myself. I might be in a room by myself, but I'm not alone. I got that too. So, five months sober, I am off to the bridge. Doesn't that sound like a really cheerful process? It was not. It was very painful. I was court-martialed and given the appropriate punishment, 
except the uh, the colonel looked down at him. For those that watch the video, son, I think you got a chance. I'm gonna give you 18 months. I got 18 months in the brig. Now I got to tell you, when you're looking at 14 years, somebody telling you 18 months will drop you to your knees. And it did. Because I can't express the gratitude that I felt at that moment that somebody was going to give me a chance. Uh, now when you get to the brig, I thought I was really, really alone. But you learn. You know, they have these adjustment phases when you go to jail. For three days, you're in suicide watch. And it's not in suicide watch. Because most people rarely commit suicide. I mean, they do. I'm not saying they don't. But people rarely commit suicide in those first three days. They usually wait until they get a little more freedom. <laughs> but in those first three days, they tell you you're on suicide. It's so you get used to being in jail. And then they put you in another special place for 90 days, because that's the next period, and you get 90 days to get used to being in a little bigger area, but you're still in jail. And then you get to go to the general population. Now in the brig, uh, you know, it's like that country song, it's a little, you, you kind of think you have a better class of losers. Because uh, everybody is still bringing GIs up. Uh, nobody I knew in the bread was there because they uh, were bad NCOs or bad airmen or bad officers. We didn't see the officers, they get to the letter mark. Uh, they just screwed up. And I found out we all screwed up when we were drunk. See, going to jail is a wee program too. <laughs> But they had a meeting there, an AA meeting. Uh, when I was making all the rounds, I met these guys down in South Germany. South Georgia, and they were in a place called Worms. And there was a roundup down there, and I met these two guys, Jason and Joe. Jay and Joe. And Jay and Joe brought a meeting to the brig on every Tuesday night. And I didn't once I got to the point where I was to go to meetings, they let me, and I was amazed when these two guys came in, because I didn't know it was them bringing the meeting, and they came in, and it was like being back home again. It was like being back in my home group. And I would talk to them a little bit after the meeting, because our after the meeting usually got like 15 minutes, and you got to go back to this thing called count, where they count all the prisoners. They call us inmates, they didn't call us prisoners. I didn't want to feel like we were prison. Because we were in the brig as punishment, not for punishment. That's what they kept telling us. I don't think they all believe that. But that's a separate story. Maybe that's an outside issue. I'm not sure. But uh, we would talk about how to do my eighth step and how was I going to get this done. Uh, and I had I had done like four or five that I could do before I went to the brig, and some of them didn't go really well. I went and made amends to my commander. That didn't go really well. You can imagine that. Uh, he was the guy that was convened my court martial, signed the paper saying this guy's going to jail. 
Uh, and he was Catholic, and I wasn't. So I, there was no way I was going to get absolution. He said, if you want absolution, you're going to have to go talk to a priest and convert. And I wasn't really prepared to do that. Uh, I probably could have gone and talked to the priest. It would have been okay, but I didn't. But while I was in the jail, I got a new sponsor. And he was a guy that had been in the program and had gone back out. And gotten locked up. And got back in. Uh, and I got a sponsor. I was amazed. This guy came up to me. Did you not just really happen? Would you be my sponsor? I said, what? <laughs> I said, I haven't, I'm still working the stash. He goes, well, you're, you're the only one I can find that is working the stash. <laughs> so I went and talked to my sponsor, because he had already worked the steps. He had a little more time before his court martial than I did. <laughs> and, uh, he said, all you need to do is stay one step ahead of me. <laughs> so that's what we did. And I got him to his eighth step, and then I got moved to a new brig. So, I don't know. And I didn't, his, his fifth step was not really profound for me. I don't know if it was profound for him. Uh, I just nodded a lot. He said, yeah, I did that. Oh, I did that too. Yeah, I did that. I didn't do that, but I know somebody did. <laughs> and uh, meetings are different in prison. A lot of people go to meetings in, in the brig. The brig is like, now when I call it prison, it's really not like prison. The brig is the brig. It's, there's a bunch of military guys there on one side of the wall that's all glass, and there's a bunch of other military guys on the other side of the wall. We're all dressed in the same uniform. Only they have rank and they have little spaces that look like there used to be stripes there. <laughs> and I tell people, the brig is a lot like prison, though, except there's no drugs, there's no drinking, and there's no sex. But, because uh, my brother went to jail and he said, his, he had all of those. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's, that's a lot different than the brig. Uh, I did learn that going to meetings in, in the brig will not get you a better job. It won't help you with parole. That freaks a lot of people out when I tell them that. It doesn't help you with parole. It's, just, it's not that just going to meetings part they're paying attention to, but sometimes it's hard. Uh, it will help you get better, uh, depending on how sick you are. But the big thing for me is when I was in the brig and I was in those meetings and I was working this program, I was free. It didn't matter where I lived. It didn't matter where I laid my head down that night. I was free. And I think I was the only free person there. There might have been a couple other guys that thought they were free, but they weren't advertising. And I did. I told everybody, I said, I am freer than I've ever been in my life. I would have guards come up to me and go, why are you here? I said, well, we're not going to talk about that, but trust me, I'm, I'm, in, I'm where I'm supposed to be. But I was there, and I was safe, and I was free because I had a program and other alcoholics to talk to. 
because I got moved to Charleston Naval Warfare Center. I didn't get to play in any of the Naval Warfare stuff. They have a special building out there for people like me. Little big little triangles, little windows. When they get mad, if you go to prison with your earplugs in, prison is you don't wake up to count. I can tell you that from experience. But uh, this too shall pass. Going to the bridge, getting out of jail is a lot like long-term sobriety. You know, don't screw up, don't die, and you get out of jail. Eh? One way or the other. Uh, or at least the brig I was in, we were all there short term. If you had more than seven years, you got to go to the big house, and none of us did. And I got out of the brig, and I came home to Tucker, Georgia. I grew up in southwest DeKalb. I was born in Tucker. Uh, but my wife moved back here because my brother lived in Tucker, and she came with the kids while I was in the brig because, oddly enough, they won't let the state family live <laughs> And so for a while, we kind of transitioned back into a family. I sort of stayed at my parents' house some of the time and stayed with her some of the time. And then I started looking around for me. And it started off with this Clarkson group. And, and Clarkson is a great group, but I am a poor judge. So naturally, I went to like one meeting on Tuesday at one time and a different meeting on Wednesday at a different time and a different meeting. And I was kind of juggling my meetings. It was really hard for me, I thought, to find the right meeting because I'm working night shifts like I got all friggin' day. But, you know, that's the way we think. Uh, and I could never really get connected there. But I never really plugged in either. But uh, I met a guy through that uh, lovely woman over there named Wayne. And Wayne said, you got to come to the doctor. So I went to the Tucker's Sometime in the year 2000, I have been there ever since. Oh, I got out of jail. I only had to do 14 months. Uh, and I did another fourth step. And I did another fifth step. And we talked about it. And, uh, cause, and, and, oh, I gotta tell you this. I, I left this out. When you do your fourth step, and then you do your fifth step, I mean, burn it. Burn it. I burnt mine, by golly. Do your eight step first. <laughs> Just a word of warning. Do your eight step first. Then burn it. Otherwise, it's a lot of writing all over again. So, don't do that. Uh, crazy stuff. Wow, now it's like how we got here now. I actually finished up my ninth step. I carried three of them around for years, folded up, stuck in the back of my big book. There were conversations that I was going to have and I wasn't ready to have. And a couple of them I did. I went out, searched them out, found out they were dead, went and talked to my sponsor, and burned them to a moment. Yay! Uh, <laughs> hey, when you're carrying these things around for years, you're pretty, oh, they die. I don't know what to do. <laughs> Alright, whatever you did to them, don't do that anymore, that's your amends. That's like a free pass for an alcoholic. 
don't do that anymore, okay? <laughs> you know, that's what that judge told me when I got that DUI in the city of Orville. He said, don't do that anymore. So I did, not I still don't recommend Orville. <laughs> but I carried one around for about three and a half years. And I was walking through the mall one day, and this person walked up to me and said, Bobby, turn around. And I sort of recognized him. And they told me their name. I went, oh my God. And we had that friendly, you know, I haven't seen you in 15 years, chat, da 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 da. And I said, oh, let me get your number. And so we swapped phone numbers, and I'm, you know, oh, crap. <laughs> I called my sponsor, and about two weeks later, I called that person, I asked him to meet for coffee. And I said, I need to meet you for coffee. There's some things I need to talk to you about. And they knew what those things were. And I couldn't say anything, so what I did is I took out that letter I had written. And I said, I just need to read this to you, because if I don't, I'll leave something out. So I read it that. And it didn't say anything about what they did, or how they felt, or what I felt about what they did. It was all about what I had done, and what I had done wrong, and how I knew it had affected their lives. And that I was truly sorry. And if there was anything I could have done to change it, I would have. And they forgave me, which was the real miracle. And we had a little cry together. And now that person has gone on with their life, and I have gone on with mine, and we don't see each other anymore. But I put that one to bed. And it's okay. We did get back together as a family. It was kind of scary at first. Uh, my wife will testify to this. I'm not telling her story, but I'm just telling you, in our marriage plan, me getting sober was not part of the plan. Me getting a sponsor and working the steps and suddenly taking care of things was not part of the plan. Because uh, I'm not sure she was looking for an alcoholic. But I was damn sure looking for a codependent when we got married. By golly, I got I can pick out a codependent. I can walk into a room in any bar, and I know I could do this today still. Shut my eyes on the prettiest, craziest woman there. <laughs> I have proven it to myself. I've been married twice. Uh, and can you believe the first one divorced me because I drank too much? Well, what was wrong with her? I mean, I, I didn't think six a day was too much. Uh, at 18 years old, if they'd give me that damn 44 questions, I'd have been in. Uh, but I didn't get here until I was 38. Because it took everything it took for me to get here. I had to do every single one of those things. And I'm grateful that they happened. Every one I'm sorry that I hurt people. I'm sorry that I endangered people and I stole from people and I cheated people and I lied to people. But all of that had to happen. Because if that hadn't happened, I'd still be out there drinking. Now, every now and then you hear people say, you know, my best thinking got me here. And you want to argue with them and say, no, no, no. My worst thinking got me here. 
How many of us go out in the middle of the day and go, you know what? I think I'm just going to think stupid today. <laughs> I never once did that. Every single decision I made in my life, I thought that was the best decision at the time. And that's what got me to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is the only reason I'm alive today. Uh, now, I'm not going to tell you that sobriety has been grand. I have not worked a single one of these steps because I thought it was a good idea. I did not get up one morning and go, wow, I'm feeling really good today. Because mm-hmm. I didn't. I worked every one of these through pain, frustration, persistence, and determination because I did not want to die. Alcoholism is about life and death. You can do it a little bit at a time, or you can do it fast. But there are people dying of our disease every day. And I don't want to be one of those. I thought I did. I really did think I did. I mean, that last night before I came in here, I thought I wanted to die. I just couldn't find a guarantee that it would work and not be painful. Because I'm a wimp. I didn't know that before I got here. I thought I was, you know, G.I. Joe. I wasn't. I know that today. But getting sober was not part of our plan. Uh, it made both of us very angry and frustrated at each other. And, you know, for like six or seven years, she lived at one end of the house and I lived at the other. And it was horrible. But I couldn't imagine a better life. Even in sobriety, I'm talking to my sponsor about this. He's telling me, "Why do you get better?" I've met you all. But it did. We had some horrible things happen. Compliments to me. I did it. He did. And I had to do that four step all over again. So at like 11, 12 years sober, I'm going to pick up my chip at my meeting. My wife's at the bottom of the stairs, my ex-girlfriend's at the top of the stairs, and I did the only responsible thing. I turned around and went home. With my wife. And that has, uh, that has made all the difference. That got us to change the way we were living. The way we were talking and what we were doing together as a family, because sobriety is a family disease too. Or at least a family recovery. So finally, we started doing it together. And the most amazing thing happened. After 24 years of marriage, I fell in love with my wife. She is my best friend, my partner. And I love her dear. And I'm not letting go of that part. But we made a pact when I got sober. Of course, I thought it was, you know, a pact. That she could tell the judge and he'd think nice on me. That I ever take a drink, I'm out the friggin' door. Well, now the Alan Andre got a hold of her and now it's just not just talk anymore. <laughs> But today I have hope. I have hope for me. I have hope for y'all. I have hope for everybody. I know it can get better. 
I don't go and struggle through every day hoping it will be better. I have faith that it will be better today. Whatever good times I'm having, I know they're temporary. But whatever bad times I'm having, I know those are temporary too. I know your bad times are temporary. I know your good times are temporary too, so when you're rubbing them in my nose, I know, I'm like, okay, it's temporary. I still suffer from being an asshole. I don't know if that's a defect yet. God has not decided. I have not found an assholeholic to meet One of the things my first sponsor told me, he goes, Bobby, if you want to go through life, you got to live honest, appropriate, respectful, and direct. Now that's the hard, H-A-R-D. Because life is hard. All you have to do to get through it well is be honest, appropriate, respectful, and direct. Now, I don't have any problem with honesty and directness. I tend to suffer on appropriate and respectful, though. But I think I'm getting better. Uh, I'm not going to tell you I am. Because then I'll start thinking I'm humble, and humility is one of those things that I am until you tell you about it, and then I ain't humble anymore. I will admit that I'm not an honest, or not honest, well, I'm probably not honest most of the time. I'm not a modest person. So, you know, the best thing I can do is do something nice for somebody and not tell anybody. And hope you never find out what I did. So if you're in here, and you don't know me, and I said something nice, A, I didn't say it. I heard it. And B, don't tell me. Because then I'll be okay. Because if you tell me, wow, that really helped what you said, then then I'm going to go tell somebody about this. It's going to mess up my spot. (laughs) I have learned the steps are always scary before you do them, not after. Any step. The fourth step is the scariest to me. (coughs) Writing it down is harder than actually... Once you've written it down, you kind of, okay, I, now it's all on paper now. But the whole writing it down part. So if you need any help with your code writing, see me after the meeting. I'll, I'll, I'll show you how to do it. So you'll know what the code is and nobody else will. Uh, pain is required. Suffering is optional. That has been my program. Uh, everything I have done in this program has been motivated by pain. Doesn't have to be. I, I know alcoholics all the time. They say, Bobby, you don't have to be like that. Okay. I, I, obviously, I'm not convinced yet. Uh, I don't argue with God. My God doesn't fit in the church. He, she, it. I'm not real sure what it is. Uh, God does not speak directly to me. Thank God for small babies. Because if he did, once again, I'm a wimp. We're building a house with those bricks, baby. Because that would scare me to death. God talks to me through alcohol. We have come to an agreement that he is better to be in charge of this show than me. And 90% of the time, I let him do that. And the other 10% of the time, I dearly try not to drink. 15 years sober is still one day at a time.
I handle my problems one day at a time. It drives my kids crazy. Because I'm like, well, that can happen. We'll worry about it when it happens. Well, what are we going to do? We need to make a plan. <laughs> I don't know. Because no matter what I tell you today, I'm going to be using a different brain tomorrow. Because <laughs> some of these brain cells are still dying. <laughs> I mean, you can tell me something this week, and by next week, that brain cell's gone. I mean, they say, you, you know, physically, about one year, you're, you're physically as healthy as you're going to get. But I'm convinced I got brain cells that are still suffering. Uh, sometimes I hear people talk about the alcoholic in them, my alcoholic. I don't have an alcoholic in me. I am the alcoholic. Now, the downside of that is I don't have anybody to blame for none of the crap I did. I did. I made those decisions. There was no Bobby the alcoholic, Bobby the sober person. There was just Bobby. We talk about the committee, me, myself, and I. Yeah, I know who they are. They're all me. Before I go, I want to tell you some of the important things I've learned when I got in here. One of them is the grace and mercy of God. By God's mercy, I did not get what I deserved. By God's grace. I got an awful lot I did. Sobriety is a journey, not a destination. There's no graduation date. And I hope you all have a hell of a ride, because I have. I've enjoyed every minute of it. And I'm going to give you something before I go, if you're new to the program, that a lady named Dottie in Germany gave to me. And I so desperately needed it. I give you permission. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much. 